0: Hello and welcome to
4: Saturday's edition of History Hack. We've got a surprise for you today. Well, it's not really a surprise, but it's cool um, because we've been yapping about it for over a week and harassing you. Uh, Alina, tell everyone uh, who our first guest is today.
2: I'm actually really, really happy about our first guest. So if we're going to end up taking sides, which we're clearly not, okay, as a closet ancient historian, which I've been proclaiming for the past two weeks, I will be firmly part of hashtag Team Tom. (laughs) Our lovely Tom Holland, who is an author of some fantastic books, including Rubicon, Persian Fire, and his latest, The Hugely Ambitious Dominion, uh, The Making of the Western Mind. Tom Holland, thank you and welcome. Thank you very much for having me.
4: Oh, we're so excited. But I'm afraid it would be Team James for me if we were going to turn this. I think people actually wanted to turn this this into a bun fight. But unfortunately, we're not just going to televise you fighting, Uh, being rooted firmly in the twenty. We never fight. We never fight. And that's lovely. (laughs)
1: <laughs> no, this is not a, a Romulus and Remus situation.
4: No, so being rooted in the firmest, firmly in the twentieth century, his brother hardly needs an introduction either. I would be Team James. Uh, James Holland is ever present in bookshops and on your televisions, as well as organising the fantastic Chalk Valley History Festival. And in breaking news, his latest book, Normandy Forty Four, it's just won an award. Hurrah! Say hello, James. Hello. Congratulations. What, what award <laughs> has it won? <laughs> <laughs>
3: Don't put me on the spot like that
4: it's the gold um, medal is it the military history monthly yeah,
3: it is and yeah. um uh i'm obviously very honored although i do feel I, it's a bit of a bit of a swiss really because um you win because you've had the most votes and i'm sure he who has biggest social media has probably got the best chance of winning to be perfectly
1: congratulations I, I hadn't realized that that's fantastic
4: you. news. You say uh, that, uh, but social media is hard work, James, and if you've put the work in, don't deny yourself.
1: <laughs> well, I know, I just,
3: you know, I, I, you know, it's not like it's it's judged by a panel. I Obviously, I'm absolutely thrilled about it. I really am. Um, uh, and it's always nice to get any award and to be recognised and all those sort of things. Um, but I kind of, it's not like sort of winning the book or something because it's not a panel of, of considered experts. It really is that is the punters out there.
4: Well, I'm going to... I'm going to toast it later anyway Just for an excuse of oh, drinking you, another you. gin and tonic uh, Guys, how is lockdown? Where are you doing lockdown from? James, you're in the countryside, aren't you?
3: Yeah, I'm in the countryside I'm, I, I actually live in the same village Where uh, Tom and I were brought up uh, In ah. the Chalk Valley uh, Surprise, surprise And um, uh, it's absolutely stunning here It's lovely And, um, uh, you know, to be honest I'm, I'm kind of on a on deadline hell on a book So it hasn't so far made a huge amount of difference to me Because all I'm doing is writing all day is this um, Sicily? That's all I've been doing. So I've been in personal lockdown, whether there had been a lockdown or not. To be
4: perfectly honest. Is this the Sicily slash Italy book?
3: This is the Sicily totally Sicily book. Ah, yeah.
1: excellent.
3: Um, Sicily forty three. Yeah, yeah. Which is out in September. So awesome. awesome.
1: Tom, whereabouts are you? Uh, I, I'm in Brixton, um, and my wife is literally on the front line because she's a midwife at Kings, which seems to be. Pretty much um, a a kind of COVID vat at the moment. Oh
4: God bless Um, her.
1: But 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 me, uh, our two, uh, my two uh, daughters um, are both studying uh, ancient languages, respectively, at university and at A level. And I'm doing a translation of Suetonius. So the three of us, it's like a kind of monastery. We all get (laughs) up and translate ancient languages together. And um, a a bit like my brother, it's um, actually. You know, obviously the the horror of what's happening, the, the kind of grimness of not being able to go out, but from the purely selfish requirement of having to get a book done, I was meant to hand this translation in the Christmas, it's actually <laughs> been quite helpful for me because I'm getting far more done than I would have done otherwise and I'm very aware of how incredibly lucky I am relative to most people who, who, who obviously um it's it's stopping them from doing their work
4: yeah i mean it does seem to be an emerging theme with the historians we talk to that a it isn't so different from their normal lives and b they're they've got the opportunity to knuckle down and do some work but obviously it's the last excuse you'd want to be able to do it and so we've been talking about the madness of coronavirus as well so the today like what people seem to be doing the weirdest things to keep themselves entertained you know the toilet duck bottles i didn't realize that if you lie them on their side, they look like ducks. And there's a photo online where a guy's arranged like half a dozen of them and fed the ducks and thrown bread at them. And there's another video this morning of a Chinese man putting plungers on his nipples and using them to swipe upside down Corona bottles without the Corona falling out. And then he acts like it's the greatest thing he's ever done. Have you resorted to any weird hobbies? Yeah, but you see, this is, this is
1: the advantage of having a deadline is that you don't actually have to put plungers onto your nipples <laughs> to entertain yourself because you've got work to do that's the huge advantage of it otherwise i'm sure i'd be doing very similar things but fortunately i don't have to do that
4: so both of you are too busy and um, maybe you could celebrate with stuff like that after you've finished uh your oh, the, the, the
1: plungers are, are, are stacked up waiting but their time <laughs> has not yet come
4: <laughs> so um we put out uh we've been putting out for like a week now asking people um for questions for you guys, and brilliantly, some of them are like joint questions and really interesting. And we've got some on your various um, specialities. Unfortunately, some people seem to think you are like all omnipotent as well. There's one guy that's asked if you could tell him why it hurts when he pees. Either of you want to touch that?
1: I, no, I don't want to touch. <laughs> <laughs> Particularly since um, uh, I, w- I would guess it maybe he's got venereal disease. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> Certainly don't want to touch that.
4: <laughs> <laughs> James, any diagnosis?
3: oh god goodness no no i haven't faintest idea i mean you know sort of um stones in your bladder i have no idea uh, drink more
4: water see if that works
3: drink more water well that is usually the best cure isn't it
4: yeah or drink gin gin works too let's let's have some serious well semi-serious questions um alina i love this first question because i don't really understand why it's relevant um but right. i want to hear the answer
2: <laughs> So this is from my best friend who Tom, Tom actually has met, met, met her a couple of times. Um, Linda Allen. You know, you know, Linda. I do. And uh, Linda, I rang her up last night and I said, Linda, have you got any questions for Tom? She said, yes. Really important question. Are you ready for this? Yes. What is Tom's <laughs> favourite dinosaur and favourite period and why?
1: Oh, my favourite dinosaur was always um, Stegosaurus. Um I remember my mother making do you remember that, do you remember that cake that she made us do and I also remember making a model one. Yes uh, so, so, so I, I always I always love saying I think because it had um because it was very stupid <laughs> 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 and and also nobody knows what really what the uh, what what the plate's on its back are for. so it combines a, a kind of an appealing look, stupidity and a mysterious bodily feature. And you know <laughs> what's not to like, really. Um,
4: oh, T Rex is always my favourite. Mine
1: too. Yeah, Mine too. Silly little
4: arms, they're hilarious. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I suppose it eats lawyers. I, I, yeah, <laughs> this is true. <laughs> I suppose there is that. What was the other question? What's my favourite period? Yeah, yes. and why? My favourite period. Well, my favourite period is um, is the fall of the Roman Republic. Um, and the reason for that is that I got interested in in um, in Rome partly because of Asterix, and partly because of a book called uh, The Roman Army, which featured on the cover um, a, an unbelievably brutal image by the great Peter Connolly of the Siege of Alesia with various Gauls and Centurions stabbing each other with spears. Um, so that was my kind of childhood immersion in the period. And then I, I studied uh, the poetry of Catullus, and then I studied uh, at A-level a speech by Cicero, um, in which, um, the woman who very possibly was was Lesbia, the the, the woman that Catullus writes his poetry about, turns out to be this sensational kind of high society vamp who's possibly committing murder, possibly um, poisoning people, and the whole glamour of that then ripples out and you follow the kind of various threads of this case. It leads you back to Julius Caesar, it leads you to Pompey the Great, it leads you to um, all the great figures of the period, and so I, I, I've always been fascinated by it, um, and that's why when I came to write history, it was the subject of the first book that I wrote, *Rubicon*. And um, we got to actually say something.
2: go on. You first. Do you know what it is? I'm really sorry, James. I know we work on the same time period twentieth century, World War Two. Love it, love and respect your work, but Tom, oh my God, I can listen to you talk about ancient history all day.
3: Well, to be honest, I could <laughs> And um, uh, funny enough, Peter Connolly, um, a, a weird thing. I mean, we were both obsessed with these books. And uh, he also did an amazing one on the Greeks as well. And I think one on Hannibal. And they were all they were just superbly well illustrated. Uh, anyway, I remember going to his bookshop in Lincolnshire. I had to give a talk in, in, in this bookshop. And there were lots of pictures of his books and, and pictures of them. God, Peter Connolly, I love those books. God, they were amazing. And so I waxed lyrical about it for 30 minutes. And they said, yeah, we had his wake here in this bookshop two days ago i was absolutely uh, devastated uh, i had no idea
1: anyway there um, you
4: go There's emma, emma southern came on our down the pub segment that went out last night and absolutely handed julius caesar's ass to him um it was a debate on the greatest villains in history and uh she pretty much wowed everyone with why he was a massive dirtbag do you agree
1: tom I think he was a uh, uh, yeah he was pretty sociopathic um (laughs) I mean an astonishing man um as people have often said great in almost every way it's possible to be great but um greatness is a terrifying and predatory thing and um you know you were talking about your fondness for tyrannosaurs um (laughs) Caesar is a kind of a a kind of tyrannosaur. I mean, he's the, he's the kind of apex predator The the smell of blood in his nostrils and um, the kind of the the, the, the fascination and the genius is intertwined with everything that makes him a a, a pretty chilling figure. I mean, he's, you know, the conquest of Gaul, which viewed from the perspective of Asterix, you'd think no one ever died. You know, they just kind of end up in trees with stars going around their heads, but it was a genocidal conquest. Plutarch, writing a century or so later, says that, um, that, that he killed a million and uh, enslaved a million. And those, those figures, while they're exaggerated, were clearly felt to be not completely exaggerated or else he wouldn't have written them.
4: And um, let's ask James a question. Um... I think Tom, as well as myself, suggested uh, thought this might be uh, made up when we read the question. Uh, Glenn Towler wanted to know: Do you think that uh, the RAF rhubarb operations over northern France were just a waste of pilots and aircraft? Is this a thing? Uh, uh,
3: yes, I, um, I do. To be fair, so rhubarbs were—that's a code name for operations. These were fighter sweeps uh, launched in 1941, by which time the Battle of Britain had been won. Bits had been going on, and the idea was to send over. In, the increasing numbers of Spitfires, particularly that we had, fly them over to Northern France and try and get the Luftwaffe to come, you know, take off and engage and shoot them down. That was the idea. But of course the big failing of it was exactly the same failing that hit the Luftwaffe in 1940. Namely that you've got to get across the channel in the first place. Once you get there, you don't have very much fuel. So your actual time in combat is very small. Um, And the other thing was that the Luftwaffe didn't really play ball, except occasionally. Um, And those Spitfires, of which there were a vast number, Um, There was something like 11,800 built between November 1940 and December 1941. Weren't really needed there, whereas they were desperately needed elsewhere in the war, um, not least the Middle East and particularly on Malta. Um, So they were a waste of time. Yeah, they didn't really achieve very much apart from kill lots of good pilots and and lead to lots of losses of planes. So um, uh, short answer is yes, I do think I agree with you, Glenn.
2: We've got a question for Tom now because we're gonna we're gonna do a swappsy now <clears throat> actually I want to know the answer to this as well so Alex from the Netherlands asks whom do you consider the most intriguing emperor
1: okay uh well uh, in, in most intriguing in terms of of the scale of achievement would undoubtedly be Augustus because um i mean his 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 achievement is seismic he's probably the single most significant political figure. In, uh, in in European history, he he succeeds in in patching together the Roman Empire as it's falling to pieces. He succeeds in establishing a, a, a political system on the rubble of the collapsed republic that will endure in various evolving ways for centuries. Um, and it's it's an absolutely astonishing achievement. But on the personal level, he he kind of achieves it by dissolving his personality. And in in the fourth century. Um, Julian the Apostate, another emperor, uh, describes um, Augustus as a chameleon, that he, he changes his appearance all the time. So as a young man, he's a kind of terrorist, he's a warlord, then he gradually emerges to become the upholder of constitutional uh, legitimacy, and he ends up the father of his country, and he 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 is all these things and none of them. So it's very difficult to get a sense of him as a personality. So the most intriguing personality, I think, is um, is Nero, who was clearly a, a terrible emperor, <laughs> but, but amazing because he was in a way so postmodern. He was so self aware. He. Uh, presented himself as a kind of figure from tragedy. So when he murders his mother, far from trying to cover it up, he actually goes on the stage and plays the part of famous matricides from Greek tragedy. And almost everything that he does, he, he seems peculiarly modern because he has that very modern understanding of how image plays and um, how controlling the medium then enables you to control how you present yourself. Um, And he has this kind of monstrous charisma that endures to this day. People to this day know exactly who Nero is, which is more than you can say for most emperors. He's probably more famous even than Augustus.
2: Mm. You're you're breaking my dog's heart right now because he's called Nero and finding out all these things. I don't know how he's going to react. Uh, is he a great musician? Does he is his howling beautiful? No. Uh, he. Do you know what? Actually, we got him to <laughs> howl the other week for the first time in four years. So yeah, no, we we're on a good well, good because
1: people always think that Nero was 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 terrible at music. Actually, I think he was pretty good because um, effectively, what he, if you think about someone who um, uh, uh, maybe a U.S. president today who um, people often compare him to Trump. But you would need to be able to headline Glastonbury, to uh, race in Formula One, to win an Oscar. Uh, that's the level of, th- of a, a thing that, that Nero is doing. So he, obviously he, he, he can do it because he's the emperor, but you can't have been completely hopeless or you would have been laughed off stage even if you were emperor. So I think that Nero was not nearly as bad at the liar as people like to think. So kudos to your dog. <laughs> he, should, he should glory in his name <laughs>
4: <laughs> James let's get back to World War 2 for you um, I like this one but you have to listen all the way to the end because otherwise the answer's too easy which battle from World War 2 is the most influential in turning the tide in the war in your opinion not counting D-Day
3: well I certainly wouldn't have um, included D-Day even if we had been allowed Oh, to, really? But, uh, no uh, it's the Battle of the Atlantic without, absolutely without question it's the most important because everything because um, this, this, the Second World War is won not because of the Eastern Front, it's been won because of uh, because of the Western Allies. It is, it is the German defeat in the Battle of Britain that uh, makes Hitler turn to the Soviet Union earlier than he planned with such catastrophic um, results. It is also um, Western Allied supplies which help the Soviet Union in a crucial moment. Um, it is also really about shipping and supplies the Second World War. Uh, and that involves getting across the sea. Um, and whether you want to send supplies to the Far East or whether you want to send them to um, um, to Britain as a springboard for the uh, invasion of um, of Northern Europe, you've got to get through the Atlantic. Everything comes through the Atlantic. So winning that is an absolute priority. And it's something that that Britain in the first part of the war makes an absolute priority both in terms of research and development and the technological prowess which they, uh, they apply, um, but also in terms of um, uh, resources as well. So everything flows into the Battle of the Atlantic and actually Britain gets to a point where it's not going to lose the Battle of the Atlantic, with, admittedly with Canada's help by May 1941. Uh, and actually the United States Navy is involved in the Battle of the Atlantic from August 1941 as well. So before Pearl Harbor, which is December that year. And it's absolutely, without doubt, the most important um, uh, uh, theatre of the entire Second World War. So there you go.
2: Good answer. Very good answer, actually. I'm yeah, sold. Joy. <laughs> But it's naval, so um, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna move on very quickly to Tom. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, James. That's all right. <laughs> <laughs> so okay, let's talk a bit about ancient empires. Which ones do you think, or which one do you think would have survived if it played its cards right?
1: Oh, I think. Well, I think there's a very simple answer to that because it has survived, and that's China.
2: Oh, interesting. Well, did not think of that at all. Me neither. All.
1: Well, uh, I mean. It, I think um, in in the West, we have an automatic assumption that all empires rise and fall and we kind of regard it as being like a law of physics that that what goes up must come down. and the reason for that is that for us the primal example of empire is Rome, and Rome famously <laughs> declines and falls. That's yeah. what everybody <laughs> knows about it. Um, and so Rome always provides, you know, it's, it, it, it right the way from um, from, from Charlemagne up to uh, Mussolini and Hitler. It's always provided the archetype of 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 empire. Um, but for China, that's that's not the case at all. I mean, China essentially is an empire, as you can see to this day very clearly from its policy towards Tibet, from um, its policy towards the Uyghurs, its policy towards Taiwan. Um, And Xi Jinping may not be an emperor, but he's an imperial figure. Um, And essentially the, um, the apparatus of the People's Republic of China is simply imperial China, but with a Marxist bit of cladding.
4: That's a really good... I was not even expecting that coming China. That's a really good point me neither
1: I, I was, mean um, you know because because Rome Rome um, particularly in the west uh, and and then of course also in the east with the with the um the, the Arab and the Turkish conquests was dissolved before people who ended up not thinking of themselves as Roman um whereas in China although the Chinese Empire was repeatedly conquered by barbarians the the the, the, the the sheer size of China, the coherence of it as a state, um, the uh, the prestige that Chinese civilization exercised, meant that um, you know the Mongols or the Manchus, when they, after a century or so, had basically become Chinese and got swallowed up by it.
2: I think that should be your next book. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the lack of Chinese would be a problem.
4: <laughs> well, actually, that's really interesting because this next question is completely about that.
2: I'm um I'm switching I'm switching sides, so I really do apologise, Tom. <laughs> I'm now going on to hashtag Team James. So <laughs> let's um the the question goes: uh, Do you think there is a lack of knowledge, understanding in history books? due to authors, researchers not being able to read a certain language, German, for example, in my case, and thus having to rely too much on other people? Um,
3: I don't think there's a lack of understanding because people don't re- read languages. So I think there's a lack of understanding because people just look at it through the narrow prism of their own national experience. Um, and I think there's too much of that. I mean, one of the things I always really try and do is look at any subject I tackle in a kind of 360 degrees as far as I possibly can. I mean... You know, one is sort of limited on sources because there are more sources for the victors inevitably than there are for the losers. Um, but I don't think it's an excuse, to be perfectly honest. And I think, you know, there's some amazing work that's been done on, say, you know, on, on Germany in the Second World War. I mean, I'm just looking up at my bookshelf now and I've got a kind of a massive uh, multiple volume set, which is taking up an entire two foot long shelf, three foot long shelf. Um, of the German official history of the Second World War. And, you know, they, to, to compile those those series of books, the team that was behind it ploughed through vast amounts of primary sources. And, you know, every time I go to, you know, I go to Freiburg, which is where the military archives are and pour through all sorts of stuff and there's and various other archives besides. So I don't think that's a, that's a reason. I just think it's because people are interested in D-Day and not other things, you know, and, you know, that's um, why knowledge of, of, of what Britain and America particularly was doing in the Second World War is greater than it is in, you know, the war in China, from the time of what my bro was saying.
4: Tom, what, what's your take on that question?
1: Well, I, 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 um, I, I, I was at the coalface of this question when I wrote a book about the origins of Islam, because I, I didn't speak Arabic uh, and I didn't speak um, Syriac uh, and I didn't speak Hebrew, all of which were... Well, you don't so, speak it, any of
4: those. That's no, and those,
1: <laughs> uh, and, and um, the reason that I felt able to, to write the book was that um, actually most of the, the there are very few sources in Arabic that are contemporaneous with the beginnings of Islam. And that was kind of the point of, of, of the book. But having said that, um, I was horribly aware of the fact that, uh, you know, that this was this was a real issue. So um, the way that I got round it was to um, employ as a researcher a, a, a Syrian postdoctoral student who had been specialising in the relationship between um, Hebrew and Syriac uh, texts in late antiquity. And he would, he, he, he would pass for me every, every passage from those three languages that I needed, And we would spend kind of days going over and over them. And he would explain exactly what they meant and the kind of various nuances and complexities that that shadowed um, sentences, but often even individual words. So oddly, in a way, I, um, (laughs) despite despite not speaking them, um, because I had this kind of immersive experience with him, I, I, had a, a kind of a, a perhaps a much a much cl- kind of I there was a, a closer process of reading than I might have done if I spoke them all fluently um but having said that I would I would never begin to write anything about um a- Arabic history that that took me beyond the period where we have very scanty sources and where most mm. of the sources are, are are in Greek or Latin. I um,
2: actually agree with uh with James uh on I actually agree both of you but uh, more on James's uh, point, where, for example, I don't speak German, and um, having access to, to working on German history and Polish history is um, is is quite a challenge. Looking at it from a different perspective than most Polish historians, so it's quite a, quite a good one. Um, Let's move on to James, another another, another question for James. Look, I have no idea what this question is about, like zero. <laughs> I am staring at it for the past five minutes. I've been staring at it, and I'm going to read it out, James. Please bear with me. Insight on the almost widespread, capi- capi- I can never say this word, Capitula- capi- capitulation, thank you very much, uh, of the German church's support of Adolf Hitler. It's pretty niche. <laughs>
3: um. Well, the 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 the, church, the Catholic Church to start off with did support the Nazis and um but, oh, but no 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 Hitler no no, no. it's trying to
1: concord out with the Nazis. It didn't support them. No, it the difference there is really I think quite crucial, isn't it? Uh, yeah, but but um
3: but Hitler was very against the church, the leading Nazis were against the church, so they were trying to sort of slam it out, they had their own kind of sort of very weird, uh, particularly the most ardent of all the Nazis they had this very weird um approach to uh um uh religion and had this kind of sort of invented this entire uh um kind of sort of fake mythology with this christ like figure at the at the, at the heart of it um uh about christ with a k um the world ice theory and all that kind of nonsense uh it was absolutely bonkers um and um you know as the as the nazi regime progressed um, so uh, the church was uh, pushed to the background in by by the nazis as much as possible and so inevitably support within the church for the nazis got
1: less and less well done because um, I'm I mean, I mean,
3: qualified to talk about about religion
1: in the 20th century than, than I am. i mean it's it's actually it's it's not in any way a research topic it's 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 pretty fundamental um to the condition that we're in now, the West is Mm. in now, because what happened with with the Nazis was that for the first time since Constantine, a regime came to power that was overtly committed to overthrowing not just um, institutional Christianity, as the French Revolution had done, as the Russian Revolution had done, but to target some of the most fundamental moral underpinnings of Christianity, of which the two obvious ones are the kind of the universalism of Christianity, the idea that there is no um, Greek or Jew, that all human beings are created equally in the image of God. That was obviously not something the Nazis agreed with. And the other thing that the Nazis targeted was the assumption embedded in the idea of the crucifixion that the victim can overcome the torturer, that the weak can overcome the strong. Um, and this also was targeted. At the church, both all the churches ent- entirely understood the scale of. The horror that they were facing. Um, the Catholic Church, which was looking at Russia, had seen a kind of mass—you know—with with communism a massive assault on on on, on institutional Christianity. Clearly, recognised that that there was a that Nazism was a, was a kind of corresponding threat, and essentially signed the Concordat. And the Papacy then walked the tightrope of trying to ensure that it wouldn't be obliterated, while also trying to help Jews to to uphold um, the right of, of the disabled not to be terminated. Um, but it was obviously incredibly difficult. The, 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 the one church that that really I think did succumb was the Lutheran. There, there were Lutherans. Although again there were that you know there were plenty of Lutherans who entirely understood the, the the scale of the horror that they faced. But there were some who um, there was a there was a big conference in uh, in the Wartburg, which is where Luther had translated uh, the the New Testament into German, and there was a big conference there that essentially abolished the Old Testament, that said that the um, the Old Testament was was Jewish, that the Jewish God was not the Christian God, and um, there's a sense there of the kind of uh, a ghoul-like, wraith-like church that perhaps would have emerged in the wake of, of a, a, a victorious Nazi Germany. But the, but the Nazis were, had a kind of, Himmler had constructed a, a 40-year program for the eradication of Christianity, had, had the Nazis won, and all that would have been left I mean, it would, in, in, uh, in Dominion, I'd say, you know, it's equivalent of the Nazgul, it would have been a Nazgul church, a ring-wraith church. Um, everything that had been good about it would have been converted to the cause of evil.
3: That's borough.com slash ACAST. borough.com slash ACAST.
4: That's brilliant. Um, Thank you for that, because we totally didn't understand the context of the question or or why it was significant.
1: Um, see The reason reason I think it's, and I said that it's significant for the present, I think that, that one of the reasons why institutional Christianity has faded so profoundly since the Second World War is that in a sense, we no longer need it because now, rather than saying what would Jesus do, we say what would Hitler do, and then we, rather than doing as Jesus would have done, we do what, the opposite of what Hitler would do. I think that that um, you know our, our moral framework is provided by the Nazis. We do whatever the Nazis didn't do.
4: It's an interesting shift, um, James. Slurpy cod, what a name! Uh, lives locally to someone who won a VC in the San Nazare raid. And he would like to know how important was the raid in the scheme of things?
3: Um, Yeah, well, it's reasonably important. I mean, this is part of the combined operations, and combined operations is set up... um, to, it's part of the kind of setting Europe ablaze thing that um, Churchill announces in the summer of 1940 and combined operations to set up and so is um, the SOE, the Special Operations Executive, which is all the secret agents being dropped into France and all the rest of it. Um, the, the thing about the commando raids is that they were, they, they, were, um, they were combined operations because they were Navy and Army and Air Forces together, all working together to do these little kind of, um, you know you might go off and, and take on a sort of fish oil factory in Norway or you might go and take out a radar station at Bruneval in, uh, or you might um, you might do the uh, Saint-Nazaire raid and the Saint-Nazaire raid um, is interesting because it, Saint-Nazaire in, in, um, in France northern France facing out onto the Atlantic has the largest dry dock um, in Europe at the time and it's the only dry dock where the large battleships like the Tirpitz can be repaired. And so what they're trying to do is stop those battleships, those warships from operating in the Atlantic. Um, and what they want to do is, is canalise them so that they go, have to have to operate into the North Sea and home waters, at which point they'll be incredibly vulnerable to the Royal Navy and to the RAF. So the idea is to knock that out. That means that when the, the Tirpitz, for example, can no longer use that dry dock and has to go go elsewhere. Um, and the raid is successful because they do knock out that dry dot and um, it's never used again in the, in the Second World War. But there's um, some 620 odd people involved with the San Jose raid and 394 of them never get home again. So it's incredibly expensive. Um, but in terms of long lasting effect, it's quite substantial.
4: Guys, let's just. There's been some questions that have come in that um, I think are great for both of you. There's a few quick ones. Let's blast through these. Um, If you could go back and watch any historical event unfold in real time, what would it be?
3: Uh, For me, it would be Keith Miller's 185 not out at Lords in
1: 1945.
4: Excellent, Tom.
1: Oh, (laughs) the the Sunday after the crucifixion.
4: Oh, that would be enlightening, wouldn't it? Yeah. (laughs)
1: quite a lot hanging on it
4: yeah that'd be a bloody good book when you came back as well yeah
1: exactly no one would believe me but you
3: know
2: what about who you could interview if you could interview anybody in history who would it be oh
3: goodness
1: me Um, um herodotus because um he would have um I, I would like to know about his methodology. I'd like to know what he'd seen. He, I'd like to know if he'd really been to all the places he talked about. Um, I've kind of lived in his head for so long that I, I would, um, I'd love to put him on the couch. I would absolutely
3: love to have dinner with uh, Phil Marshal Alexander. I really, my great hero. And uh, he was just the most amazing man. He, ha- he was absolutely devoid of any ambition and uh, was just extraordinary and charming and erudite and spoke seven languages and could paint and was the only Allied Commander to have fought in battle at every single rank all the way from um, 2nd Lieutenant to Field Marshal Uh, and he was the only Allied Commander to have commanded German troops in battle as well when he commanded the Baltic Landswehr in 1919-1920 um, and uh, he also played in the Fowlers match, which is the most famous Eaton Harrow match and uh, cricket match ever um, in 1911. Uh, and I would just, I just love to sit down and just talk to him and, and hear about his life. It would just be amazing.
4: Awesome. Uh, which historical figure would you like to be leading the fight against coronavirus?
1: <laughs> Eisenhower. Um Somebody who knows
3: what they're talking about. <laughs> I think, I think that Eisenhower, person is. He, he, Eisenhower would have, uh, have. I mean, he oversaw this extraordinary coalition um, in, in the Second World War, and uh, he would just have done. He'd just do it brilliantly. You know, if you, if you wanted an administrator and someone who could bring everyone together, bring the world's resources together, um, I think he's the, the, the most likely candidate.
1: You see, I, I think that, um, I don't think you'd want someone from history, because I, I although um, the, the responses in many ways are kind of medieval, and um, I think that's part of the problem. I think we need someone with an absolutely up-to-date understanding of epidemiology and technology. Uh, and if such a person exists, I, I, I don't think that they're currently in a position of authority. Um, Someone out there who's brilliant with tech and epidemiology—if you're—if you're listening to this, you know, step forward and offer your services. <laughs> to <me>. Good point.
3: <laughs> Professor Levitt—he seems to be on the finger on the pulse. Professor Levitt.
1: Well, we want to think that, don't he's we? Probably, he's he, he's probably saying probably. that we can—we'll <laughs> we'll be able to get out within a few weeks. So we want him to be
3: right, but I don't think he's... that's quite the same. I'm definitely sticking with the person who gives the most
1: optimism. I know. That's I know. It. I'm only. <laughs> <laughs> I'm entirely rooting for people who say we'll be over by uh, by early May.
3: Please let there be a cricket season.
1: <laughs> we
4: will live some cricket for you in a minute. I have something planned for you at the end, a couple of questions. Um, but Alina, what was the next one that came in um, from people on Twitter?
2: This is a question that would be really great for our up-and-coming historians um, and you guys can give us some great advice on this. So how can historians learn to ask interesting questions that can challenge and inspire? And perhaps we should add that their publishers deem sellable.
1: <laughs> well, I think that the, the thing about history, uh, unlike any um, other academic discipline is that it's also a branch of literature. So there are, there are two ways of pursuing a career in writing history, either uh, academically or, um, the way that my brother and i do so i think you have to decide um first of all what's you know what what your market is wh- wh- who are you writing for um what is the governing principle that determines you uh and i think that really that is that is probably the single most important question that you can ask is is um to be aware of the fact that that when you are writing history you are also writing a kind of of literature, and that's true even of, of 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 academic works. But I think it's particularly true of those who who that, that that are not academic. So, what is the relationship between the past and the present form that you are using to write about the past? What is the interface? Um, and I think that when you're aware of, of 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 that, then all kinds of interesting avenues open up.
4: James, any tips?
1: Yeah, yeah I mean, I. You know,
3: I, I, you know, obviously academic work is is just so invaluable for me. It's not true, but but I think also that that ultimately, our our most people's interest in the past derives from from human drama. I mean, that that, that is what it's all about. It's 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 like w- watching an incredible soap opera, um, but with the most extraordinary cast of people from yesteryear, and I suppose. From my point of view, you know, what I'm trying to always do is bring that human drama level into it, into what I do, uh, and then fold the analysis around it. So, um, from my point of view, I think I think the kind of, you know, for aspiring, again, I agree with Bro, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it depends on what, what form you're taking, whether you're going down the academic route or whether you're going down a kind of sort of more mass market approach. But... But you know the greatest is you know some of the greatest historians are the historians that are most read, and most read historians again. It's all you know if you're talking about Herodotus, for example. You know what makes his his books uh, so amazing and so wonderful is all the human stories. It's all the it's all the characters that emerge from it, um, and it is ultimately storytelling. I think, and so. Um, if you want people to read your book and you want people to understand about the past, you've got to make them readable, because otherwise only a very, very small minority of people are going to be looking at it. Um, and that's one of the that's one of the the, the the issues with academic writing is that academic writing tends to be rather on the dry side. So although it's incredibly important, um, it's not widely read, whereas if you want to be widely read, I think you've got to kind of your focus has to be about the people.
4: Excellent. I mean, it'd be daft not to ask you both while you're here. I mean, it's fascinating that two brothers come out of one family and become historians. What's the common thread that made you both fall in love with history as kids?
3: Well, in my case, it was definitely my bro. Uh, um, You know, Tom is two and a half years older than me. um, And uh, he was always the kind of brain box in the family. And um, like most older brothers... Kind of sort of slightly kind of sort of um, bossed me around a bit, but in the nicest possible (laughs) way. And we do an awful lot of kind of role play of stuff of of sort of, you know, Romans and Gauls and, and, um, uh, uh, and Athenians and Spartans and Trojans and stuff like that. Um, And uh, I suppose really it probably came from our father, who was a a, a big history lover and kind of fostered that onto us. And, and, you know, we used to spend our holidays going to the kind of, you know, the castles of of northern Wales and um, going to Hadrian's Wall and and stuff like that. So, you know, we read those Ladybird books and we had... which, which Bro's been tweeting about re- recently, we had this amazing history of the world book that was kind of fabulously illustrated. And we both used to sort of pour over that. And I used to, I mean, I used to, I, I used to kind of slightly copycat my brother. So so Tom led the way with the love of history and I kind of sort of followed. So, I mean, if it wasn't for Tom, there's absolutely no way I'd be sitting here kind of, you know, slaving over a book deadline. I mean, absolutely no question about it. I just wouldn't even have occurred to me. So, um, but we, you know, history was just very much a part of our, our upbringing. You know, it was just absolutely our number one interest. I think. correct. We grew.
1: We grew up in a part of the world that was uh, history was was omnipresent. I mean, we we grew up outside Salisbury, so we had obviously the the cathedral there. We had Stonehenge. We had um, hill forts, uh, Roman remains, uh, medieval remains, um, Tudor, Stuart, Georgia. I mean. We had a beautiful Queen Queen Anne house where Cecil Beaton lived um, in the village where we grew up. John Albury, um, the great 17th century chronicler, lived in our village. So there was a definite sense that in a way, um, history was something vivid and real all around us. And I just, you know, on, on a personal level, right from my various youngest years, always felt vaguely that the past had been more interesting than the present. Um, and, and that goes back to, to an interest that predated my interest in, in history, and it's one that you've you touched on with the very first question, which was was dinosaurs. And I remember going up the, the lane that led up from the back of our house and looking around at a, a load of, of um, sheep <laughs> I think God, I wish they were Triceratops. I, I I just longed for for everything to be uh, Mesozoic, basically. Um, and and then when I kind of moved on and 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 brought that same kind of um, romantic yearning for the for the past to be vivid and real, I would feel it in the same way going into a kind of multi-story car park in the shadow of the cathedral. I'd think how much more impressive the the close and the cathedral was than the multi-story car park. Well, you're Brilliant. right about that. <laughs> we, this, I mean, we were both absolutely convinced there was this ghost
3: of a Roman centurion up this lane. Uh, and we used to go ghost hunting on, um, you know, we'd sort of get up on a, early on a, on a summer's morning and go up this lane hunting for the ghost. And, and, and we'd absolutely convince ourselves that we'd seen something. I absolutely.
1: Although, to be fair, just, just, up just
3: on that ridge, I'm
1: sure <laughs> I saw something move. To, to, to <laughs> be fair, just, just, just I, I don't want really to think that we just completely lived in the past. We did also <laughs> go <laughs> looking for flying sources That's as well. <laughs> <laughs>
4: it sounds we were, like a we lot were,
1: we of fun. Were flying saucers.
3: Yeah, we were really into flying saucers at one point. Um yeah. Kengy Green Green Man yeah. and, uh, and uh and we were very into the Beatles. So we were we, we used to spend all our birthday and Christmas money whenever we got, you know, a, a five pound record token, we'd go into Smith's in, in Salisbury and, and buy the latest Beatles album that we didn't have. And um, and then just obsess about all that. So and then there was cricket. So Those were the kind of three strands, really.
4: Let's move on to cricket,
3: right? First
4: of all, someone did ask a question. Uh, Tom, have you recovered from your elite sports injury?
1: Um, Yes. Well, I I recovered from one elite sports injury and then I sustained another. Um, And I was having an intensive um, process of physiotherapy and then um, the coronavirus hit. Oh, no. very selfish of it. Yeah, that is. So, um, So at the moment, my my course of physio is, is, is non-existent. So I don't actually know what to say to my elite sports injury, but the the tragic thing is, is that it doesn't really matter because, you know, there's not going to be any elite sport from me, um, or indeed from anyone, certainly for, for a month or so. Um,
4: we asked, when we asked questions, uh, so Dan Snow was tagged in on one of them when we put questions out because we're having him on for a Q&A next week. Um, and someone asked, who's the best cricketer out of the three of you? Now, I think this kind of presumes that there's some historian Barry-esque a la Akbari's cricket team out there. Yeah, there's
3: the author's CC, which was originally founded by Conan Doyle and Jan Barry and Barry others and P.G. Woodhouse. So, yeah, and of which Tom plays literally every match when he's... Not gone on an elite sports injury um, and, and I used to play a lot for and have played less so in recent years because I'm busy playing cricket down here but we're both members of that
1: team
4: And are you both better than Dan Snow? Yes
1: <laughs> <laughs> My brother <is> better <laughs> then, bro has uh, bowled Dan is much better rower than he
3: My, been brother, my brother has bowled out Andy Caddick he was a former England bowler um, oh. That's,
1: That's very my, sweet it's my, my brother is by miles the best sportsman um, and, and a very very good cricketer but I, I like to think that I talk a good game. <laughs> <laughs> well, I as, want historians, to... as historians, we know that uh, it's not so much what happens, but... What gets written up about what happens? That well,
4: yes. Yeah, so let's let's do some talking <laughs> on cricket because that's what we're all good at. Yeah, uh, I wanted to it. ask you um, both, but I'm going to put mine forward first. Uh, the greatest cricket match of all times. James has already mentioned mine, um, but it was 1910, not 1911. Uh, Fowler's match, which was Eton Harrow. Um, so John Manners played, who I wrote about in my Eton book, and obviously the future Field Marshal Alexander as well played. But basically, Harrow had been unbeaten all year, but the star of the day was Eton's Robert Fowler. So apart Apart from his 64, Eton's second innings was rubbish, as was their first. Um, and in desperation, their last man had racked up 32. And then Harrow went into bat. They basically only needed 55 55- runs to win. And what yeah. followed was absolute chaos. So the Eton captain led a charge that brought the Harrovian batting order to its knees, basically. Within half an hour, he'd taken eight wickets, five clean bold, and Harrow were all out, all but obliterated for 32 for nine. So such yeah. was their confidence that Harrow's 10th ten, man, Alexander, was stuffing his face with a cream bun when someone burst into a tent at the nursery end Wait. and went, oh my god, the Harrow wickets are coming down like nine bins And that he might be needed So he's still trying to swallow his cream bun In the pavilion by the time he gets um, To the crease And he only managed 8 runs before the innings was over Harrow all out for 45
3: What's that? I
4: think he was not out, if I remember yeah. Right. Uh Yeah, so, but Alexander um, was the last one in. Harrow were all out for 45. Eton won by nine runs. Fowler was a national celebrity in an instant. Such was the acclaim that fan mail addressed to Fowler's mother, London, was getting to the lady. That's how much came in afterwards. So that's my nomination for greatest cricket match of all time. What about you guys?
3: Well, I... I, I would have loved to have seen um, Headley Ver- Verity bowling out Australia in 1938. I really would uh, at Lords. Um, I'd have loved to have seen that. I don't know whether it's the greatest cricket match. I mean, there's so many. You know, Lakers Lakers 19. That would have been pretty good, I think. Um, but yeah, that that Keith Miller match. So that was um, that was Dominion's against uh, an, a Dominion side against uh, an England side. All of them were, I think, all of them were Test cricketers, in various states of of, of ill health or good health. Um, having come out of prison war camps and, you know, the war over and all the rest of it. But I think that it would have been a, an amazing thing to see because, of course, there hadn't been anything like it throughout the Second World War. Then suddenly, you know, there is this unleashing, this, this kind of, and, and I imagine it will be not dissimilar once coronavirus is gone and, and suddenly everyone can get back to watching sport again. You know, that kind of sort of pure joy that that something that has been stopped has been started again. And to see that hitting, that free hitting, you know, he hit something like seven, I think he hit six sixes in that matches, which it, which in those days where bats weren't as powerful as they are today, was quite going some. And he hits one six, which actually hits the pavilion roof and is, um, it bounces and probably would have gone over the pavilion roof had it not fallen in a hole in the roof caused by some bomb damage.
1: Tom? Well, uh, I, obviously there are all kinds of matches where amazing individual feats have, have, have lit them up. Um, and the, there are all kinds of matches where, um, you know, the final result comes down to the last over or the last wicket or the last run or whatever. Um, but I think, I think the requirement the is to say what, w- which match, if somebody wrote it as, uh, as a fictional account, mm-hmm. would you think was the most implausible? Yeah, so, they, there's no way that could happen. I mean, they're just con- you know concatenation of increasingly implausible ratchetings up of the tension, and I actually think that that in those terms, the um, the World it's Cup cool. final last summer it, is, oh, yeah, un- yeah, yeah. is pretty <laughs> unbeatable because. They, they, they had it on the um, on BBC News website this morning, cheering people up by putting up, you know, <laughs> great, great sporting occasions. I watched, watched, and you just, it's just, you would, if, you, if that had been written up, you would not believe it. You would not believe it. No, I
3: agree it. with that. I agree with and that. That's a really really good point.
1: I just, I just think that, 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 I think that has to go down as, as, as the kind of, the, the most improbable cricket match of all time. Bearing in mind what it was, the stakes, the venue, the occasion. And yeah, as I say, the, just the, the, the kind of ratcheting up of wholly implausible developments. So I, I very conventionally and very boringly go for that. And I'm aware that I kind of run the risk of, you know, the, the lists of the greatest albums of all time. and It's always <laughs> the one, number one is the most recent one. So I may be <laughs> of that. But I think it will stand. I think I think that match will stand the test of time as just a wholly improbable flukish, weird, you wouldn't believe it if it was written in a story kind of match.
4: Brilliant. Um, I'm going to be cheeky here. Uh, James, tell us why we should buy Tom's latest book, Dominion.
3: Uh, because it's immensely rich in every single regard. You you finish that and you read that and you you feel you know an awful lot more about our past, why we are where we are in the world at the moment. Um, It is full of the most extraordinary uh, anecdotes, some disgusting, some very funny. Um, Loads of tidbits of stuff that I just never knew. And it really, really gets you thinking. I thought it was a profoundly fantastic book.
4: Agreed. Tom, why should people buy Normandy 44 and be really excited, possibly, about Sicily? Either one. (laughs)
1: Um, Because most... um as far as I can tell, most books about the war operate on separate levels. So um, some will focus on the the, the minute by minute, the hour by hour, the day by day fighting, the tactical level. Um, And some will focus on the the strategic level. Um, Occasionally you'll get books that, that combine those two levels, but what you almost never get is books that combine those two levels with a third level, which is the logistical dimension, the the dimension that recognises that people can't fight and strategies can't be conducted unless you can actually get the hardware and the the manpower to certain places at certain times. And um, D-Day, as all my brother's books do, fuses those three dimensions in a way that no one else has really done. And to, to be honest, the, the the real fascination of it for me is it's it's not the stuff that I kind of already know. I mean, you kind of already know the story of D Day, but what I did not know is the the way in which it completely hung on dimensions of logistics that my brother has spent his entire career bringing out. Um, and to pull the camera out, the, the 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 books of my brothers that I think will will really endure and change the, the the way that people understand about the war are, 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 the, are the three volumes he's done the first two the third is in, in the pipeline um, the, the war in the west because what that does is to demonstrate that the sense that that Britain in particular was a kind of dad's army shambles could not be further from the truth and that in fact Relative to Nazi Germany, it's, it's um, in purely in terms of war, it's, it's, it's Britain that's the killing machine. It's Britain that um, is much, much better at killing the enemy than the Germans are, which is kind of stands on the head everything that I thought I'd known. And um, I, I think that, they, you know, that these books will have a, re- a really enduring impact on the way that, that, that everyone comes to understand the war. Which, and and you know, the Second World War is basically, I mean, it's the topic that everyone, you know, it's really, really difficult to have yes. a new angle on it. Definitely. Oh, uh, cheers, bro. <laughs>
4: oh, you really like each other. It's great.
3: I mean, there's one other thing that's really annoying about, about, about uh, coronavirus is that the week after next, we were due to be doing a 150 mile walk from Eastbourne to Stonehenge in protest of the Stonehenge Tunnel. And
1: now we can't. We, oh, mention be like, that,
4: because we're following them on Twitter. Give yeah, them a the we plug.
1: Were, it, it, it's, we were going to set off um, Easter Monday, um, walk all the way to Stonehenge, um, along the South Downs Way, uh, over long prehistoric trails. Uh, and there would have been a hint of Chaucer as well, going on, on pilgrimage in April. Um, I was so looking forward to it. Um, but as soon as it's... So, so determined yeah. to try and raise the the... the, 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 the the, the profile of the campaign against this um monstrous attempt by the government to desecrate our most significant prehistoric landscape to to drive this kind of great gash of tarmac and concrete through what is a world heritage site um and it looks like we won't we won't be able to do that i mean the only the only positive is i i hope that um that with with the impact of uh, the, the the government's attempt to hold the economy up um at the moment, maybe there won't be enough money for this terrible scheme to go ahead. But um, we... there's a
4: Stonehenge Alliance thing on Twitter, isn't there? How can people there get is. involved and if the, they're mortified? So, yeah.
1: The, sorry, the president of it. Um, and uh, if you're not following it, yes, please go out there and follow us. Um, Save Stonehenge. But we're
3: Funny. still going to do our walk, aren't we, bro?
1: Yes, we are. When when we get out, when we get out from lockdown.
4: And after you've played cricket.
1: Yeah. Uh, we might yeah. combine it.
2: so ladies and gentlemen before we go i actually have a request from tom for tom my dad is one of your biggest fans uh he's unfortunately down with a severe infection and he really was desperate to ask you a question he couldn't ask the question because unfortunately he's got a high temperature and he's in no state to give you something coherent so i was really hoping you could like say hi to him and cheer him up a little bit while he's stuck in bed uh, at home.
1: Absolutely. Uh, You know, at a time when, when, when so many people are suffering, it's terrible to hear that. And, and all I can say is, you know, wishing you the the very best. Um, Come through this. Um, The weather outside is, is gorgeous. Spring is coming. Summer is coming. Um, There is, hope there is an end to all this misery. Um, There will be light at the end of the tunnel Um, and uh, I hope that um, we will get to meet at some point um, and then we can look back at this and think how awful it was and and now we're out of it and and, and the dark memory will just make us appreciate the the present that we've arrived at all the more. So wishing you all the very very best.
4: Thank Thank you you so much Tom. Uh, We must also um, Send our love to Paul, who is uh, in hospital with horrifically low oxygen stats at the moment. Um, We are sending you all our love, uh, Molly's dad, and we're hoping you get better soon. Um, Keep fighting, and we love you to bits. Um, And also, Tom, uh, we always seem to be on the phone recording down the pub at 8 o'clock on a Thursday, but this is for your wife. A little applause from me and Alina
1: oh
4: thank you <laughs> for all the nhs people out there good luck mrs holland and thank you for everything you're doing guys thank you so much for joining us this has been so interesting on you both on like a personal level hearing about what inspired you both and hearing about both your topics and both your latest projects as well thanks very much for your time Thank you very much. Join us tomorrow when we will be talking to the lovely Susanna Lipscombe about fifteen thirty six and why it was the year that changed everything for Henry the Eighth. We'll talk a bit of Cromwell as well because everybody's obsessed with him because the Mirror and the Light just came out. Um, Until then, though, stay safe. If you possibly can, stay at home. Uh, This is Nighthawk signing off.